0: Hey, this is Keith. I'm the pastor of Blaze Church. Welcome to our podcast. I know today's message is going to inspire you, encourage you, and lead you to know God more. If you want to connect with us, visit us online at blazechurch.org. Enjoy today's message. It is good to see you. And hey, first day of spring, and it actually feels like it. Who's thankful for that? Yeah, it's a great thing. And, um, Man, I'm just, I'm grateful that you're here today. Grateful we have opportunity to worship Jesus together. And it really is a privilege. And as I said, if it is one of your first times with us, be sure to stop by our welcome home area in the back. So we're on part three of this series um, that we're calling Chasing the Wind, the Book of Ecclesiastes. And if you haven't been with us the past couple weeks, not a problem at all. Uh, Big concept here, life is pretty meaningless. That's what we're learning, right? Just like, okay, what's the point? Um, The teacher has just been asking that question over and over. Is there a reason to our existence? Is there a reason to fun? We talked about that last week. Pastor Brian was here from Centerpoint. What's the purpose of pleasure and we came across the word that gets translated as meaningless or as vanity in English. But does anyone remember the, uh, the Hebrew word for that? Havel. Havel. Yes, very good. You're all Hebrew scholars now. Put that in your resume. Uh, Havel. And the word Havel simply really means smoke or enigma or vapor. So in his opening remarks of this book, the teacher says, Havel, Havel, life is Havel. Meaningless, meaningless, or rather, smoke, vapor, confusion, enigma. What what is life except that? And we talked about how we know that to be true. And some of the examples that we read in Ecclesiastes is why do really good people end up dying so young? Why does it seem like corruption goes unmet? It's just not fair. Why is it that you can pour everything into a career or a relationship and the next morning, it's like smoke. It's gone. It was there. You had a plan for it, and now it's gone. And we're discovering that Havel, smoke, vapor, enigma, it's going to impact every single one of us, whether you know Jesus or not, because we all live under the sun, the other phrase that keeps coming up. Havel is used almost 40 times in this very short piece of literature. And under the sun, that phrase is used almost 30 times. And so here it is. The teacher is kind of asking the question that all of us ask. And sometimes in church, we're afraid to ask it. Like, is it okay to doubt? Is it, is it okay to, to be curious about God? And a book of scripture is saying, yes, absolutely. Bring your doubts and your confusions and the hangups you have about life to God and discover his plan. So let me ask you this question now. Have you observed Havel in your life? The answer should be Havel, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. I've, it's everywhere. Like I, this week, you just feel like you finally got a footing and then you don't. It's taken from us. And that's because of the other phrase that I just said. We all live what? Under the sun. We all live under the sun. If you and I continue to look around us for meaning and purpose under the sun, we're going to keep coming up short. So last week, Pastor Brian led us in a discussion regarding pleasure, regarding uh, really hopes and, and, and fun and satisfaction. We talked about sexuality and all these different things that promise us pleasure, and yet under the sun we will find emptiness if we live for them. And I loved what Pastor Brian said. The big takeaway for me was this, that purity is God's plan for pleasure, right? That it's not an either or of versus, but rather when we walk out God's plan for pleasure, when we recognize he's the author of pleasure and under the sun, he has the perfect plan for it, then it's not the source of satisfaction Jesus is. And then we can enjoy things that are pleasurable in this life because we know Jesus So today, we're not going to talk about pleasure. Uh, We're going to talk about another area of our lives that every single one of us engage in in some way, and it's this word, work. Ah, work. Good old work. Work ever feel like Havel to some people? (laughs) Well, meaningless, a little what's the point here? Why am I doing this? This was supposed to be a summer job, and now I've been there decades, right? I was actually one of my stories, uh, part of my story, when I was 18, I took a summer job just to cut boxes in a warehouse and was there seven years. Uh, and so, yeah, understand that. Before we dive into work and we talk about this, uh, I'm going to ask you a question, and I think you'll know the answer. And if you do, you can shout it out. A little bit of conversation this morning. So, when you're first meeting someone, or you're, uh, maybe you've met them a few times, and you're really starting to build uh, relational trust, or you're just getting to know them uh, beyond their name, what's typically a question that someone asks in that opening conversation? Anyone know it? Just shout it out. What do you do? Look at that. You put it right on the screen. You guys all just did that. Who's got a little pointer back there? It's just, yeah, what do you do? It's going to be a question that's going to come up. Now, this question, what do you do, is a normal question to ask and engage in with someone. um, And and it builds a little more understanding of, of, you know, what they do. But now I'm going to ask you a question, and it may seem like a riddle, but go with me here, okay? This question, what do you, what's the word in yellow? What do you do is a doing question, meaning you're asking about someone's doing, their activity with their hands. What do you do? Now, here's the riddle, okay? What is the first two words? I feel like we're playing a game show now. This is, this is fun. What are the first two words that someone typically responds with to the question, what do you do? I do, you say that. I do computers. That's weird. I, I work for, that might be it. I am. That's getting closer. So uh, this is, maybe I'm wrong on this. This is like one of those family feuds. How many points I get? Survey says, what's the answer? I'm A, I'm A. Think about it, I'm A. What do you do? I'm a teacher. What do you do? I'm an architect. What do you do? I'm a pastor. What do you do? I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm A is typically, usually flow, it, usually that's the words that flow out. Okay, now I'm not trying to split hairs about linguistics, everybody. So don't, dude, you're just analyzing this too much. But I want you to think about this. We're not going to talk about sentence restructuring today. We are going to talk about heart restructuring. But think: the question that's often asked is a doing question. What do you do? The response that's often given is an identity answer. I'm a. What do you do? I'm a teacher. What do you do? I'm a stay-at-home parent. What do you do? Uh, I, I'm, I'm someone who cleans houses. I, I'm a cashier. We often look at a doing question, and in our society, we answer with an identity answer. Here's who I am. So keep that in your mind for a second because there's a reason why we have such a leaning to answer, What do you do with who I am? Because every single one of us, every one of us, wants to form a personal identity, we're looking to show others who we are. And often, who we are gets meshed with what we do. And there's a danger there. So, uh, there's a resource that I was in this week, Sources of the Self, and it's by Charles Taylor. I want you to just be curious about this for the next few minutes. Uh, It's by Charles Taylor, and he talks about three questions that everyone asks in forming personal identity. Here's the three questions. You can write them down or take a picture. These are the three questions we're all asking in some way. Maybe not this way, but we ask these. To what do I aspire, what am I worth, and who gets to say According to Charles Taylor, these are the three questions that you and I are actually living to answer, informing a personal identity. To what do I aspire? Everyone's living for something. We're all living for something today. Something woke you up. Something gets you motivated during the week. Something is the main thing, and that thing will speak into your identity. What am I worth? It's an assessment of ourself. So if if, if what I aspire to be or do is teach or law or, or whatever it might be, well then, what am I actually worth? If I were to assess that, am I, am I doing well? And then the third question comes in, and this is the one that we might push against and say, no, 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 no I, I don't fall here. Who gets to say? And someone outside of you always does, even if you won't admit it. It might be your spouse about how you're doing as a spouse. It might be your children about how you're doing as a parent. It might be your boss about how you're doing in your job. It might be your friends and how you're doing relationally. It may be your bank account on how you're doing financially. But someone or something gets to speak into your aspirations, your worth, and they get to say. And all of us under the sun amidst the havel of life are striving to form a personal identity, and oftentimes, for adults, we gravitate towards what do you do? Our work. Our work. And now, if if you're not working right now, we need to broaden that a little bit. There are lots of areas where we can form personal identities in our work or in our doing. Uh, It can be in your actual career, your occupation. It could be in your image, how you look, how others perceive you to look. It could be in your intellect, how people perceive your mind to work mentally and, and the books you read or the conversations you have. It could be in your net worth. You're forming an identity around how much money you have and what you've accrued. It can very much be in your parenting parents, that you feel a sense of worth and aspiration if your children are following a path that you prefer they follow. If they're young, if they're listening at home, if they're older, if they're living successful lives. But every single one of us, including the teacher, we're about to see his words. We are going to work in some way. We are going to look to form a identity by which others will see our aspirations, declare our worth and say, yeah, you're making it. You're doing a good job. But under the sun, is that really a safe place to form identity? To attach it to our doing when it can all just be Havel. So let's see what the teacher has to say. Because we've seen so far, the teacher has told us about money. He's told us about uh, pleasure. He's kind of walked us through different areas wherein he might find some sense of meaning. So let's just see if the teacher somehow gets meaning out of doing and you could probably guess the word he's going to use when it comes to describing work. But let's go there anyway. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 4. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself, and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. Anyone else what you're doing? We call it gardening, everybody. All right. Just my many groves. You got your cucumbers, your tomatoes, like you just, you're putting out the hoses. The, the That's what he did just on a much larger scale. Uh, I bought slaves, both men and women and others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. So a few things here that we are reading that are descriptive, not prescriptive. Stay with me. Descriptive of how the teacher tried to build an identity. Slave owning. Many concubines, which would be women he could just have sex with at any point. So please don't take this as a prescription for your life. It won't end well, okay? This is just describing what the teacher did. This is like OG Hugh Hefner, everyone. It's just, this, this is just what, he just built the mansion. He's just telling everybody, I, anything a man desired, I worked for it. I had it. Biggest homes, biggest company, women, wealth. And then he says this in his last verse, wisdom. He says, so I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me. And by the way, my wisdom, he says, it never failed me. It it, it never failed me. So here the teacher is letting us know, his listeners know, I worked to form an identity. I worked on my home. I worked on my garden. I worked on my net worth. I worked on all of it. And here's what he says. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is, say the word, meaningless. Havel. It's nothing more than a chasing after the wind. Can anyone here honestly relate that sometimes it feels like all of our hard work is just chasing after the wind? Yeah, you're relating to someone in Scripture. That it just it just feels like uh, nothing more than a rat race. That it, it kind of just feels like you're jumping on the hamster wheel. That you've fallen into the mousetrap. That's three rodent cliches in a row, bro. Note that. I got no more. Come on, sometimes life just feels that way. It feels like, what is the point here? What is the purpose? Yeah, so what? My home looks great. I worked really hard on it. So what? If you open my portfolio, I checked off all the boxes. But there are days where we wake up under the sun and it feels like we're chasing the wind because we're forming an identity around what we do. And we know deep down inside of us that what we do never feels enough. Never feels enough. So the teacher is going to show us two reasons why looking to work for identity and purpose is a really bad area to look to for identity. He gives us the two reasons right here. He says it in the next verse. Verse 18, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun. And here's why. Reason number one, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. He who dies with the most toys still dies. (laughs) He still dies. And all my toys are left to someone else. Who's glad they're in church today? This is so encouraging. (laughs) Your home, your children, some of us are forming our identity around how our kids live. You're gonna leave them to someone else. Your money, your career, all of it. He says, I have to leave it all behind. And then I love how real scripture is. Like, this is just, if, you, if you're not reading your Bible because you think it's boring, this verse, this next verse should make you say, like, I'm just going to open this up because this is great. Look at what he says next. He's so blunt. And, and who knows whether the person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. Here's what he's saying. You don't even know if the person that you're leaving the company to, despite all the hoops you've jumped through to get the contract just right, will actually be a fool or not. You don't even know. I I read this quote. I thought it was great. With so many fools in the world, chances are that everything will fall into the wrong hands. (laughs) You can do your very best to get the will signed off just the way you think it should go when you're gone. But when you're gone, you're gone. Under the sun. And you and I are forming a personal identity around our doing when it's going to cease at some point. And the teacher's like, this is smoke. This is the enigma. This, this is Havel. I'm putting so much into this. I'm answering the question, what do you do with I'm A? And I'm, I'm showcasing myself and showcasing my hard work for What? some point, it's all going to be gone. Now, the answer is not to work. I mean, not to not work, however I need to say that, okay? So don't leave here and quit your job, okay? We're going to stay with him for a second. I'm going to give you the answer, but before we do, first reason, it's all going to come to an end, and here's the second reason that he gives as to why it's it's a poor area. He says in verse 22, what do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? He's asking the question, okay, What's the point? And here's his answer. All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. Okay, so the first problem with looking to work, and again, work might be in your career, in your parenting, in your image, in your finances. The first problem with looking to work to define you is it's all going to come to an end. And the second problem with looking to work to define you is the work itself. He says it's just tedious. It's just painful. There's days where it's just grievous. It's those days where you pull into your company's parking lot and you sit in the car a little bit longer wondering, is what I'm doing making a difference? It feels hard and heavy. And not just physically, but he tells us mentally it does. You know, if your work and where you're forming identity is around your children, your parenting, you've got those nights where you just wonder, like, am I doing this right? Why why are they going in this direction? Our our minds, and he's saying, like, it just feels havel. See, if, if we make work our life, it will leave us empty every time. And I think that this is gonna be such a hard concept for us here in this part of the world because so much of who we are is shaped on what we do. It's, it's just, that's why that's the natural response to the, the question. We lean into identity. So how do we then safeguard ourselves? Again, how, how are we gonna work Whatever that looks like, how are we going to work? And yet at the same time, because here's the tension, I know I need to be doing with my hands, but I need to guard my being of who I am from being attached to my doing. And yet I have to do. It, it's, we're going to see why in a moment. So the next verse, finally, after two chapters of drama, of lamenting, uh, of just pouring out over and over the teacher, just saying it's, it's meaningless, it's Havel, it's Havel. The next verse is what, what scholars say is the first of the enjoyment passages in Ecclesiastes. So we're all about to just get a little more uplifted, everyone, finally. It's been three weeks in this. We've made it two chapters. And it's just felt so heavy. In fact, one commentator said, it is an oasis of hope in a desert of despair. <laughs> I'm like, ah, oh, you are so right. So here's... Here's the glimmer of hope, and at first it may not seem that way, but this is what's known as the first of the enjoyment passages from the teacher. Verse 24 A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too I see, he doesn't say is havel. He says it's from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat and find enjoyment? Not only is this considered one of the first enjoyment passages in Ecclesiastes, it's actually one of the first times God is entering into the picture in this book. The teacher now is saying something comes from God. Now, do you notice that we just read, he said, that our work has nothing but toil and grief and pain? And now, he says, there's satisfaction in your own toil? So, which is it? Mr. Dickens, is it the best of times or the worst of times? Because it cannot be both. Yes, it can. What makes the difference here, a statement later, that the teacher would say, find satisfaction in your own toil, as opposed to him saying, your toil is grievous and painful? What makes the difference for him? The hand of God. God makes the difference. All of a sudden, the teacher has this perspective shift where he's not looking under the sun any longer, but he's looking above the sun and he sees the hand of God as the one who has provided him with his work. It says, what if I don't look to the work itself for meaning, purpose, and identity because, ah, that is nothing more than Havel, but what if I look to it as from the hand of God and suddenly I can be satisfied in my doing. See, work, guys, work is not a bad thing. In fact, you know, maybe you don't, you're about to. Before the fall, before the, the, the first humans sinned and rejected God, there was work. What that means is work is not a byproduct of sin and brokenness in this world. I know some of you wish it was. You're like, yeah, you don't know my boss. It definitely is a byproduct of sin and brokenness. Hey, no, work existed. It was a gift from God to humanity, to work. The problem is the good thing was made dangerous. Here's how, Here's, here's a quote. If we're having trouble finding enjoyment in life, God must not be at the center of the things That we do, and if we're deeply dissatisfied in our work, it could be for this reason. And here's the reason: if maybe today you are deeply dissatisfied—wow, I can't say that word—dissatisfied in your doing. Here's here could be the reason: we have been taking good things, work, and making them ultimate things, identity-forming, when in fact they are God-given things. It could be that the reason why you and I have a disdain for our doing, our work, our parenting, our worth, our money, our image, whatever it is, it could be the reason why is because you're looking to that thing to be the ultimate definer instead of looking to the one who gave it to you in the first place. Because God gives good things. 1 Timothy 4, 4 says, for everything God created is good. When God created the world and looked at it, including work, he saw that it was good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. That might be the shift in your heart that needs to happen today. You're rejecting your work so much because you're not receiving it with thanksgiving because it's consecrated by the word of God and prayer. See, work is itself a gift, but the gift was never supposed to be the end, meaning it's not supposed to be the thing that defines us. It's a gift from God. So how do we guard our hearts? How do you guard your heart to not think of yourself as less than, to not look to aspiration and and assessment through worth and giving others the say of how much value you have in your... Do- how do we still do but guard against forming an identity there? And here's what I wrote. We do not cease our work under the sun. We surrender our work under the son of God. We surrender it to him. Okay, so if you're already starting to make the email during this message that you're quitting your job, you need to not send that email, okay? You know, Keep your job. Keep your kids, as much as you may want to get rid of them on certain days. Hey, they're yours. They're a gift from God. Keep the goal and the aspiration you have to retire well, your your net worth, all of that. But you've got to ask the identity-forming questions. Am I building who I am around what I do? Or have I surrendered it to the Son of God? I'm going to give you two ways that we might surrender it to the Son of God. The first is this. You need to embrace the identity that Christ died to give us. You and I have to come back to when someone asks who you are as a follower of Christ, your one response is I'm a child of God. That's my first identity always. See, everything around you under the sun is going to be saying the same thing. You die in order to get me. In other words, you kill yourself. You, you burn the candle at both ends. You work really hard. You take any opportunity that comes. You climb the corporate ladder, chase the American dream. And in the process, there may be some devastation. There may be some relational dysfunction. There may be some compromise, but you do what it takes. You die to get me. But only Christ came and said, I'll die to get you. He's the only one. That I will die, I will lay down my life to give you an identity that cannot be removed. We need to embrace the identity that Christ came and died in order for us to receive. There was a verse that I heard in my late teens, early 20s, and I shared it with my small group this past week. This was the verse that shaped my following after Jesus. I wasn't sure I was going to continue to follow Jesus. And I heard this verse and it so came alive in my heart that I said, God, I will give up my life to make sure others know the beauty of this promise of your word. John 1:12. But to all who did receive him and believed in his name, look at this, he gave the right to become children of God. And when for so much of my life, I had strived and tried to gain the approval of God through my own doing and my own goodness, and I heard that God was giving away adoption because his son came and died for me and that I might believe in him and receive him and my identity would then be child of God. Wow. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That whatever it is you are living for and building a life on today, Jesus is saying, I came so that you might live. So we embrace our identity as a child of God. But now, what do we do with the doing? Because that's what's so beautiful about this world and the creation that God made humanity. Coming into Jesus is not a call to uniformity. That all of us suddenly follow the exact same doing, and now we have to shift everything. And I you don't know, there's unity in the body of Christ, but not a call to uniformity. So you're still gonna have your own uniqueness. You're, you're gonna be a teacher, you're gonna, you're gonna work at Walmart, you're gonna be a stay at home parent, you're gonna be an architect, construction, you're gonna do things. So, how then do you do with living out the identity of a child of God? And here's how number two, we work for the Lord. We work for the Lord. I, I'm, I, I'm honestly always just like correcting and shaping people with language, when they'll say with me, "Well, well, you're in you're in ministry." Uh, another believer will say, "Well, you're in ministry. I, I'm just I'm just a teacher." I'll say, "No, no, no, no. We're all in ministry if we're all following Jesus. You have the beautiful privilege to bring Jesus to a classroom. I've been called to bring Jesus in a church setting, in a community, in this way, but." No, no, we're, we're all of us working for the Lord wherever we are. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 3. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. This isn't about your boss. This isn't about your spouse. This isn't about your children. You, whatever you do, you, you work for the Lord. Why? Verse 24 Since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a re- reward, it is the Lord Christ you're serving. You're working for him. You're working for the Lord. So what if when we're asked, what do you do? And I'm not saying that you answer this way, because that'll be weird. Okay, so don't say this. (laughs) But think to form your identity in Jesus. But what if when you're having conversation, what do you do? I'm a teacher. And in your heart, you add on for the Lord. Like you're just starting to remind yourself. However, this conversation goes in this relationship, I'm not going to look to that person to ascribe my worth and tell me my value based on my doing because I'm a parent for the Lord. I'm a coach for the Lord. We we just start working for the Lord. And you might ask, well, how do I do that? Like, how do I work for Him then? Like, do I just make sure that as a teacher, I get a little Bible stamp in every Test gets a little John 3.16 on it with a golden star. Is that how I do it? I lose my job by Tuesday? Okay, that's not how. I read something by Martin Luther that I enjoyed. He said this, the Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes. Because God is interested in good craftsmanship. So Martin Luther is just a theologian from the 1500s, and, and he's just saying... What if you work for the Lord by doing your best? When everybody else in the company wants to compromise and there may not be integrity there, or, or I keep going back to teaching. You just, you're at the teacher's lounge and everyone's gossiping. Everyone's just sharing their, about their students to so they're complaining and, and you're not. It's you working for the Lord. Last month we did a series on four God-honoring values that create God-honoring cultures in our workplaces, love God, love others, pursue excellence, choose joy, I want you to take inventory this week and think, are those values present in your doing? Are are you pursuing excellence as a parent? Are you choosing joy as a cashier? Because that's the way we work for the Lord. And that's the way our identity is held by Jesus who came to give us an identity. And so while we work under the sun, we recognize I work for the Lord, and suddenly our doing has its proper place, and our being who we are is held intact by Him. Today, we're going to respond with celebrating the Lord's Supper together because it was the broken body of Jesus and His shed blood that paid the price for our identity to tell you just how much you are worth. So, how much is this worth? $20. I'm glad I didn't get like an inflation answer. Like, oh, it's $16.45 at this point. This will get you a good gallon of gas, yeah. right? <laughs> Maybe two. Okay, so how did you know it was worth $20? Is it made with $20 worth of paper? Is it made with $20 worth of ink? No, there's an assigned value on it, assigned by our government, U.S. currency, that says this, this dollar has been assigned the value $20. It is assigned value. Someone outside of this dollar got to say, this is how much you're worth. And for too many of us, we're looking at our job and our children and we're assigning so much value when we shouldn't. We should just let the value be intrinsic. Just let it be what it is. Don't give it so much meaning and purpose in your life life. And because Christ came, he if you are in him, gets to look at you, outside of you just as our government outside of this paper says 20, he gets to look at you, say you are worth my blood. Don't look under the sun to find your value. He came to say you're worth this much. You're worth me laying down my life. That's the value that you have church, hear me as your pastor. Don't let anything under the sun tell you otherwise. You are an adopted child of God, and so you are free to do your work and love those around you and love God and pursue excellence and choose joy because Christ has come to say you have this much value. And with that, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads as I say a prayer, and then I'll give us some instruction on how we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Father, I thank you so much for this great day and this time in your presence and the words of the teacher, the words of Jesus, the words of Paul that we read to remind us this morning of how much value we have because Christ has come and set the value. And I do pray for each person in this space and online that they have, as John 1, 12 says, believed and received Christ. Christ. And that we're living out of our being an adopted child of God. That our doing never gets the right to say you are worth this much. Lord, as we turn to your table now, as we remember you, as we give thanks, we praise you. We are grateful. We are humble. May you be honored in our lives as we continue to work under the sun and have the days where it feels as though it's Havel. May we be reminded that under the Son of God, there is beauty. In Jesus' name, amen.